Chapter Twelve, Part One of Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Molbach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers. Chapter Twelve, Part One, The Fifth of October, seventeen eighty nine. The morning dawned, a windy October morning, surrounding the sun with thick clouds, so the daylight came late to Paris as if fearing to see what had taken place on the streets and squares. The National Guard, summoned together by the alarm signal of drumbeats and the clangor of trumpets and horns, collected in the gray morning light, for a fearful rumor had been spread through Paris the evening before, and one has whispered to another that tomorrow had been appointed by the clubs and by the agitators for a second act in the revolution, and the people are too quiet. They must be roused to new deeds. The people are too quiet. That was the watchword of the 4th of October in all the clubs, and it was Marat who had carried it. On the platform of the Club du Cordelaire, the cry was raised loudly and hoarsely. Paris is in danger of folding its hands in its lap, praying and going to sleep. They must wake out of this state of lethargy else the hateful tyrannical monarchy will revive and draw the nightcap so far over the ears of the sleeping capital that it will stick as if covered with pitch and suffer itself to relapse into bondage we must awaken paris my friends paris must not sleep and on the night of the fourth of october paris had not slept for the agitators had kept it awake the watch cry had been the bakers must not bake to-night Paris must to-morrow morning be without bread, that the people may open their eyes again and awake. The bakers must not bake to-night. All the clubs had caught up their watch-cry, and their emissaries had spread it through the whole city, that all the bakers should be informed that whoever should open his store in the morning or give any other answer than this, there is no more meal in Paris we have not been able to bake, will be regarded as a traitor to the national cause, and as such will be punished. Be on your guard. The bakers had been intimidated by this threat and had not baked. When Paris awoke on the morning of the 5th of October, it was without bread. People lacked their most indispensable article of food. At the outset, the women, who received these dreadful tidings at the bake shops, returned dumb, with horror to their families to announce to their households and their hungry children there is no bread to-day the supply of flour is exhausted we must starve there is no more bread to be had and from the dark abode of the poor the sad cry sounded out into the narrow and dirty streets and all the squares paris contains no bread paris must starve the women the children uttered these cries in wild tones of despair. The men repeated the words with clenched fist and with threatening looks. Paris contains no more bread. Paris must starve. And do you know why Paris must starve? croaked out a voice into the ears of the people who were crowding each other in wild confusion on the Place de Carousel. Do you know who is the cause of all this misery and want? tell us if you know cried a rough man's voice yes yes tell us shouted other voices we want to know i would tell you 
answered the first in rasping tones, and now upon the stones, which indicated where the carriage road crossed the square, a little, shrunken, broad-shouldered figure with an unnaturally large head and ugly, crafty face could be seen. "'Marat!' cried some man in the crowd. "'Marat!' yelled the cobbler Simon, who had been since August the friend and admirer of Marat, and was to be seen everywhere at his side. "'Listen, friends, listen! Marat is going to speak to us. He will tell us how it happens that Paris has bread no more, and that we shall all have to starve together. Marat is going to speak!' "'Silence! Silence!' scattered men commanded here and there. "'Silence!' ejaculated a gigantic woman, with broad, defiant face, around which her black hair clung in disheveled masses, and which was gathered up in partly secured knots under her white cap. With her broad shoulders and her robust arms, she forced her way through the crowd, directing her course toward the place where Marat was standing, and near him Simon the cobbler, on whose broad shoulders, as upon a desk, Marat was resting one hand. "'Silence!' cried the giantess. "'Marat, the people's friend, is going to speak. Let us listen, for it will certainly do us good. Marat is clever and wise and loves the people.' Marat's green, blazing eyes fixed themselves upon that gigantic form of the woman. He shrank back as if an electrical spark had touched him, and with a wonderful expression of mingled triumph and joy. "'Come nearer, good wife,' he exclaimed. Let me press your hand and bring all the excellent, industrious, well-minded women of Paris to take Marat, the patriot, by the hand. The woman strode to the place where Marat was standing and reached him her hand. No one in the crowd noticed that this hand of unwanton delicacy and whiteness did not seem to comport well with the dress of a vendor of vegetables from the market. No one noticed that on one of the tapering fingers a jewel of no ordinary size glistened. Marat was the only one to notice it, and while pressing the offered hand of the woman in his bony fist, he stooped down and whispered in her ear, "'Monsieur, take this jeweled ring off, and do not press forward too much. You might be identified.' "'I be identified?' answered the woman, turning pale. "'I do not understand you, Dr. Marat.' "'But I do,' whispered Marat still more softly, for he saw that Simon's little sparkling eyes were turned towards the woman with a look of curiosity. "'I understand the Duke Philippe de Orleans very well. He wants to rouse up the people, but he is unwilling to compromise his name or his title. And that may be a very good thing. But you are not to disown yourself before Marat,' "'for Marat is your very good friend "'and will keep your secret honorably.' "'What are you whispering about?' shouted Simon. "'Why do you not speak to the people? "'You were going to tell us why Paris has no bread, "'and who is to blame that we must all starve.' "'Yes, yes, that is what you were going to tell us,' "'was shouted on all sides. "'We want to know it.' "'Tell us, tell us,' cried the giantess, "'Give me your hand once more, that I may press it in the name of all the women of Paris.' Marat, with an assuring smile, reached his great, bony hand to the woman, who held it in both of her own for a moment, and then retreated and was lost in the crowd. 
but in Marat's hand now blazed the jewel ring which had a moment before adorned the large soft hand of the woman. He perhaps did not know it himself, he paid no attention to it, but turned all his thoughts to the people who now filled the immense square, and hemmed him in with thousands upon thousands of blazing eyes. "'You want to know why you have no bread?' snarled he. "'You ask why you starve?' "'Well, my friends and brothers, the answer is an easy one to give. "'The baker of France has shut up his storehouse "'because the baker's wife has told him to do so, "'because she hates the people and wants them to starve. "'But she does not intend to starve, "'and so she has called the baker and the little apprentices to Versailles, "'where are her storehouses guarded by her paid soldiers. "'What does it concern her if the people of Paris are miserably perishing?' She has an abundance of bread, for the baker must always keep his store open for her, and her son eats cake, while your children are starving. You must always keep demanding that the baker, the baker's wife, and the whole brood come to Paris and live in your midst, and then you will see how they keep their flour, and you will then compel them to give you some of their superfluous supplies. Yes, we will make her come cried Simon the cobbler, with a coarse laugh. Up, brothers, up! We must compel the baker and his wife to open the flower store to us. Let us go to Versailles, roared the great woman, who had posted herself among a group of fishwives. Come, my friends, let us go to Versailles, and we will tell the baker's wife that our children have no bread, while she is giving her apprentices cakes. We will demand of her that she give our children bread, and if she refuses it, we will compel her to come with her baker and her whole brood to Paris and starve with us. Come, let us go to Versailles. Yes, yes, let us go to Versailles, was the hideous cry which echoed across the square. The baker's wife shall give us bread. She keeps the keys to the stores, howled Marat. She prevents the baker opening them. She shall give us the keys, yelled the great woman. All the mothers and all the women of Paris must go to Versailles to the baker's wife. All mothers, all women to Versailles, resounded in a thousand-voiced chorus over the square, and then through the streets, and then into the houses. And all the mothers and wives caught up these thundering cries, which came to them like unseen voices from the air, commissioning them to engage in a noble and exalted mission, calling them to save Paris and procure bread for their children. To Versailles! To Versailles! All mothers and women to Versailles! Who was able to resist obeying this command, which no one had given, which was heard by no single ear, yet was intelligible to every heart? Who could resist it? The men had stormed the Bastille. The women must storm the heart of the baker's wife in Versailles, till it yield and give to the children of the poor the bread for which they hunger. Up, to Versailles, all wives and mothers! The cry sweeps like a hurricane through the streets, and everywhere finds an echo in the maddened, panic-stricken, despairing, raging hearts of the women who see their children hunger, and suffer hunger themselves. The baker's wife feeds her apprentices with cakes, and we have not a crumb of bread to give our poor little ones. In whole crowds the women dashed into the largest squares. Where were the men who fomented the revolution? Marat, Danton, 
Saint-Hérès, Chaumet, and all the rest, the speakers at the clubs. There they are, giving their counsel to the maddened women and spurring them on. Do not be afraid. Do not be turned aside. Go to Versailles, brave women. Save your children, your husbands, from death by starvation. Compel the baker's wife to give bread to you and for us all. And if she conceals it from you, storm her palace with violence. There will be men there to help you. Only be brave and undismayed. God will go with mothers who are bringing bread to their children, and your husbands will protect you. They were brave and undismayed, the wives and mothers of Paris. In broad streams they rushed on. They broke over everything which was in their way. They drew all the women into their seething ranks. To Versailles! To Versailles! It was to no avail that de Bailey, the mayor of Paris, encountered the women on the street and urged them with pressing words to return to their families and their work and assured them that the bakers had already opened their shops and had been ordered to bake bread. It was in vain that the general of the National Guard, Lafayette, had a discussion with the women and tried to show them how vain and useless was their action. Louder and louder grew the commanding cry, To Versailles! We will bring the baker and his wife to Paris! To Versailles! The crowds of women grew more and more dense, and still mightier was the shout, To Versailles! Bailey went with pain to General Lafayette. We must pacify them, or you, General, must prevent them by force. It is impossible, replied Lafayette. How could we use force against defenseless women? Not one of my soldiers would obey my commands, for these women are the wives, the mothers, the sisters of my soldiers. They have no other weapons than their tongues with which to storm the heart of the queen. How could we conquer them with weapons of steel? We must let them go, but we must take precautions that the king and the queen do not fall into danger. That will be all the more necessary, General, as the women will certainly be accompanied by armed crowds of men, and excitement and confusion will accompany them all the way to Versailles. Make haste, General, to defend Versailles. The columns of women are already in motion, and, as I have said to you, they will be accompanied by armed men. It would not be well for me to take my soldiers to Versailles, said Lafayette, shaking his head. You know, Monsieur de Ballet, to what follies the reactionaries of Versailles have already led the royal family. All Paris speaks of nothing else than of the holiday which the king and queen have given to the royal troops the regiment of Flanders, which they have summoned to Versailles. The king and the queen, with the Dauphine, were present. The tricolored cockade was trodden underfoot, and the people were arrayed in white ribbons. Royalist songs were sang, the National Guard was bitterly talked of, and an oath was given to the king and queen that commands would only be received of them. My soldiers are exasperated, and many of my officers have desired of me to-day that we should repair to Versailles and attack the regiment of Flanders and decimate them. It is therefore perilous to take these exasperated National Guards to Versailles. And yet something must be done for the protection of the king, said Bally. Believe me, these raging troops of women are more dangerous than the exasperated National Guards. 
Come, General Lafayette, we will go to the city hall and summon the magistracy and the leaders of the National Guard to take counsel of them. An hour later the drums beat through all the streets of Paris, for in the city hall the resolve had been taken that the National Guard of Paris, under the lead of General Lafayette, should repair to Versailles to protect the royal family against the attacks of the people, but at the same time to protect the National Assembly against the attacks of the royalist troops. But long before the troops were in motion and had really begun their march to Versailles, the troops of women were already on their way. Soldiers of the National Guard and armed men from the people accompanied the women and secured among them a certain military discipline. They marched in ten separate columns, every one of which consisted of more than a thousand women. Each column was preceded by some soldiers of the National Guard, with weapons on their shoulders, who, of their own free will, had undertaken to be the leaders. On both sides of each column marched the armed men from the people, in order to inspire the women with courage when they grew tired, but at the same time to compel those who were weary of the long journey, or sick of the whole undertaking, and who wanted to return to Paris, to come back into the ranks and complete what they had begun, and carry the work of revolution still further. On to Versailles. All was quiet in Versailles that day. No one suspected the horrors which it was to bring forth. The king had gone with some of his gentlemen to Moudon to hunt. The queen had gone to Trion alone, all alone. None of her friends was now at her side. She had lost them all. No one was there to share the misery of the queen of all who had shared her happiness. The Duchess de Polignac, the princesses of the royal house, the cheery brother of the king, Count d'Ortois, the Count de Cognet, Lords Benzeval and Lausanne. Where are they all now? The friends, the suppliants of former days? Far, far away in distant lands, flown from the misfortune that, with its dark wings sinking, was hovering lower and lower over Versailles, and darkening with its uncanny shadows this treon, which had once been so cheerful and bright. All now is desolate and still. The mill rattles no more, the open window is swung to and fro by the wind, and the miller no more looks out with his good-natured, laughing face. The miller of Trinon is no longer the king, and the burdens and cares of his realm have bowed his head. The schoolhouse, too, is desolate, and the learned master no longer writes his satires and jokes upon the great blackboard in the schoolroom. He now writes libels and pamphlets, but they are now directed against the queen, against the former mistress of Trion. And there is the fish-pond, along whose shores the sheep used to pasture, where the courtly company, transformed into shepherds and shepherdesses, used to lie on the grass, singing songs, arranging tableau, and listening to the songs which the band played behind the thicket. All now is silent. No joyous tone now breaks the melancholy stillness which fills the shadowy pathways of the grove where Marie Antoinette, the mistress of Trion, now walks with bended head and heartbroken spirit. Only the recollection of the past resounds as an echo in her inner ear, and revives the cheerful strains which long have been silent. At the fish-pond all is still. 
no flocks grazing on the shore, no picturesque groups, no songs. The spinning wheel no longer whirls. The hand of the queen no longer turns the spindle. She has learned to hold the scepter and the pen, and to weave public policy, and not a net of linen. The trees with their variegated autumn foliage are reflected in the dark water of the pond. Some weeping willows droop with their tapering branches down to the water, and a few swans come slowly sailing across with their necks raised in their majestic fashions. As they saw the figure on the shore, they expanded their wings and sailed quicker on, to pick up the crumbs which the white hands of the queen used to throw to them. But these hands have to-day no gifts for the solitary forgotten swans. All the dear, pleasant customs of the past are forgotten. They have all ceased. Yet the swans have not forgotten her. They sail unquietly hither and thither along the shore of the pond. They toss up their slender necks and then plunge their red beaks down into the dark water, seeking for the grateful bits which were not there. But when they saw that they were disappointed, they poured forth their peculiarly mournful song and slowly sailed away down the lakelet into the obscurity of the distance, letting their complaining notes be heard from time to time. "'They are singing the swan song of my happiness,' whispered the queen, looking with tearful eyes at the beautiful creatures. "'They, too, turn away from me, and now I am alone, all alone.' She had spoken this loudly, and her quivering voice wakened the echo which had been artistically contrived there to repeat cheery words and merry laughter. Alone, sounded back from the walls of the marble tower at the end of the fish pond. Alone, whispered the water stirred with the swans. Alone, was the rustling cry of the bushes. Alone, was heard in the heart of the queen, and she sank down upon the grass, covered her face with her hands, and wept aloud. All at once there was a cry in the distance. The queen! Where is the queen? Marie Antoinette sprang up and dried her eyes. No one should see that she had wept. Tears belong only to solitude, but she has no longer even solitude. The voice comes nearer and nearer, and Marie Antoinette follows the sound. She knows that she is going to meet a new misfortune. People have not come to Trion to bring her tidings of joy. They have come to tell her that destruction awaits her in Versailles, and the queen is to give audience to it. A man came with hurried step from the thicket down the winding footpath. Marie Antoinette looked at him with eager, sharp eye. Who is he, this herald of misfortune? No one of the court servants, no one of the gentry. He wears the simple garments of a citizen, a man of the people, of that third estate which has prepared for the poor queen so much trouble and sorrow. He had perhaps read her questions in her face, for, as he now sank breathless at her feet, his lips murmured, "'Forgive me, your majesty, forgive me that I disturb you. I am Toulon, your most devoted servant, and it is Madame de Champagne who sends me.' "'Toulon? Yes, I recognize you now,' said the queen hastily. "'It was you, was it not, who brought me the sad news of the acquittal of Rohan?' It appears, your majesty, that a cruel misfortune has always chosen me to be the bearer of evil tidings to my exalted queen. 
and today I come only with such. What is it? cried the queen eagerly. Has anything happened to my husband? Are my children threatened? Speak quickly, say no or yes, let me know the whole truth at once. Is the king dead? Are my children in danger? No, your majesty. No, cried the queen, breathing a breath of relief. I thank you, sir. You see that you accused fate falsely, for you have brought me good tidings. And yet again I thank you, for I remember I have much to thank you for. It was you who raised your voice in the National Assembly, and voted for the inviolability of the Queen. It was not your fault, and believe me, not mine either, that your voice was alone, that no one joined you. The King has been declared inviolable, but not the Queen, and now I am to be attacked, am I not? Tell me what is it? Why does my faithful Champagne send you to me? Your Majesty, to conjure you to come to Versailles. What has happened there? Nothing as yet, Your Majesty, but I was early this morning in Paris, and what I saw there determined me to come hither at once, to bring the news and warn Your Majesty. What is it? Why do you hesitate? Speak out freely. Your Majesty, all Paris is in motion. All Paris is marching upon Versailles. What do you mean by that? asked Marie Antoinette passionately. What does Perry want? Does it mean to threaten the National Assembly? Explain yourself, for you see I do not understand you. Your Majesty, the people of Perry hunger. The bakers have made no bread, for they assert that there is no more meal. The enemies of the realm have taken advantage of the excitement to stir up the masses and even the women. The people are hungry. The people are coming to Versailles to ask the king for bread. Ten thousand women are on the road to Versailles, accompanied by armed bodies of men. "'Let us hasten, sir, I must go to my children,' said the queen, and with quick steps she went forward. Not a glance back, not a word of farewell to the loved plantation of Trion, and yet it is the last time that Marie Antoinette is to look upon it. She will never return hither.' She turns her back forever upon Trion. With flying steps she hurries on. Toulon does not venture to address her, and she has perhaps entirely forgotten his presence. She does not know that a faithful one is near her. She only knows that her children are in Versailles, and that she must go to them to protect them, and to the king too, to die with him if it must be. When they were not far from the great mall of the park at Versailles, the Count de Saint-Priest came running, and his frightened looks and pale face confirmed the news that Mr. Toulon had brought. "'Your Majesty,' cried the Count, breathless, "'I took the liberty of looking for Your Majesty at Trion. Bad news has arrived.' "'I know it,' answered the Queen calmly. Ten thousand women are marching upon Versailles. Mr. Toulon has informed me, and you see I am coming to receive the women.' All at once she stood still and turned to Toulon, who was walking behind her like the faithful servant of his mistress. "'Sir,' said she, "'I thank you, and I know that I may reckon upon you. I am sure that today, as always, you have thought upon our welfare, and that you will remain mindful of the oath of fidelity which you once gave me. Farewell. Do you go to the National Assembly?' I will go to the palace, and may we each do our duty. 
she saluted Toulon with a gentle inclination of her head, and with beaming looks of gratitude in her beautiful eyes, and then hurried on up the Grand Mall to the palace. End of chapter 12, part 1. Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee.